So we are up to footnote number three on page. The footnote is a comment on page 92. So on page 92, he's developing this thesis. Rav Hirsch is developing this thesis that in terms of determining what's considered to be success in, in terms of national outcomes, you're not using the right parameters. And what he describes is the fact that all civilizations rise and fall. And oftentimes what we find is that the very thing which led to the great success of certain civilizations ends up being the pitfall and leads to their downfall as well. So in footnote number three on page 100, so we read the first comment previously last week. And today, what we're going to continue with is the second paragraph. So we're on page 100, second paragraph. Rabbi Shamshin Rafal Hirsch's second point is that world history consists of a sequence of empires and civilizations that have risen, have made their contribution to world, world civilization, and invariably have fallen. This concept was later developed at length in Spengler's Decline of the West, and Toynbee's writing, right? So Arnold Toynbee was a famous historian and was also famously anti-Semitic. Toynbee, however, in tracing 21 cycles of civilization, had to face up to a problem that marred the orderliness of his outline. The fact that the Jewish people, having played its part on the stage of world history, has not disappeared. He therefore terms it a fossil, a dead remnant of a once living organism, right? Because it just did not fit into the paradigms that he had been setting up. And that held true for all other civilizations. So I think I might've mentioned it previously, but the, after he came out with two, two different statements that were particularly objectionable, one was that he called Judaism a fossil. And the second thing that was far worse is that he accused the Jewish state of carrying out genocide against the I don't know, genocide, but atrocities against the Palestinians. And he said there was some sort of moral equivalence with the Nazis, actually. So at that point, he was a historian at McGill University, right? And the uh, Israeli ambassador to, to Canada at that point was Yaakov Herzog. So Yaakov Herzog was the son of the chief rabbi of Israel, okay? Who, before he was the chief rabbi of Israel, was the chief rabbi of Ireland. Okay. Now, when he was the chief rabbi of Ireland, there was an individual, his name was Rabbi Aaron Cutler, who started the Lakewood Yeshiva that I am an alum of uh, in 1941 in uh, Lakewood, New Jersey. Actually started in White Plains, New York, but they moved to, to Lakewood, New Jersey shortly after that. Now, Rabbi Aaron Cutler used to go raise money for his yeshiva in actually in Ireland. So he actually developed a relationship with, um, with Rabbi Herzog and with Yaakov Herzog as well. At that point, he was a young boy. Yaakov Herzog ends up going to Aaron Cutler's father-in-law's yeshiva in Jerusalem. It's called the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva. And it is started by, um, not started, but the, the head of the yeshiva was Rabbi Isser Zalman Meltzer. Now, Yaakov Herzog later becomes the, the, um, the ambassador to, to Canada. And he feels terribly wronged. And he feels it's important to make a statement that this is incorrect. So he wants to challenge Toynbee to a debate. Before he does so, he goes to Rav Aaron Cutler and says to Rav Aaron Cutler, what do you think? Should I debate him or not? So Rav Aaron Cutler says, it's like this. If you're, going, if you're positive you're going to win that debate, you should debate him. If you're not at all positive, you should not debate him at all because it's going to be bad. So he said, fine, I'm willing to debate him on condition that you and Rav Moshe Feinstein, I can't remember the third right now, that you all will daven for me that my debate will be successful. Anyways, as the story goes, they certainly daven for him. And we know, and you can actually still watch it on YouTube. It's a 90-minute debate, fascinating debate. He was very successful. But in particular, what he responded to this comment 
I'm talking about a civilization's rise and fall. The Jews happen to still be around, but they're a fossil. So what he said is, he said like this, he said, if Julius Caesar were to walk, were to become alive again and walk the streets of Rome, he would not be familiar with anything. They wouldn't be speaking the same language. There would be no, no connection at all to him. He said, if Moses comes back alive 3,300 years later and walks into Jerusalem or walks into any town that has Jews living in it, right? And it has a synagogue in it and walks into their town, he will see them wearing tefillin, the same tefillin that Moshe taught them how to wear. They will be speaking Hebrew to each other. They will be reading books in Hebrew with the same Hebrew that Moshe had. He said, how could you possibly call this a fossil? Right? That was his response. Now, Rabbi Elias points out that in reality, of course, the answer to the riddle of the Jew is given by Rabbi Shamshin Rafael Hirsch in the next letter, in letter number seven. As the carrier of God's law, he is as undying as the message he carries, shearing in its eternity. So in other words, there's something unique about the Jewish path that no other nation, no other civilization has. They do not have this unique privilege, responsibility, burden, whichever one you want to call it, right? That, that us, that we Jews carry, right? Our, the carrier of God's law, we are supposed to represent something to the rest of the world. It is only us that, that God has promised that we will always exist, right? And therefore we are as undying as the message he carries, cheering in its eternity, God, Torah, and Yisrael are as one. This is a famous quote from the Zohar, right? That uh, right? right? So that on some level, we share a destiny with God. And it's a little bit hard to compare us to God and compare us to the Torah, but to some extent, that's what we are saying. The survival of the Jewish people for the purpose of executing its divinely assigned task is predicted in the Torah, is reiterated by the prophets, and is presented as a lasting testimony to God's rulership, right? You know, famously, um, Pascal was asked by, I think it was the Sun King. Um, so what he, his response was to prove the existence of God. So Pascal, who was clearly not Jewish, uh, said, it's very, very easy to prove the existence of God. He says one word, the Jewish, right? The, the Jews, the Jews proves the existence of God. And that's it. That's as simple as that. So it's predicted in the Torah, and this itself is the greatest proof of, of the existence of God. Rabbi uh, Yaakov Emden, right, who is the, um, the Yaivitz, famous, very, very famous Torah scholar in the 1700s, says that the greatest miracle, right, we just read about the Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea. We just read about the God revelation at, at Mount Sinai. He says the greatest miracle of all is the fact that we're still here. That's the greatest miracle. That's greater than any other miracle that God has ever done. This miraculous survival is indeed the ultimate historical confirmation of the truth of Judaism. Thus, a non-Jewish historian in the meaning of history is moved to declare that according to materialistic, positivist criteria, the Jewish people should have disappeared from this earth long ago. Its continued existence is a mysterious, wondrous phenomenon which bears witness to the fact that the life of this people is governed by a higher providence. It is interesting, however, that while the Jewish people as a whole will survive to the end of days, it shears in the process of rise and fall insofar as its various centers of settlement are concerned. Now, what he's quoting over here is the Meshech Chachma, the Rameir Simcha of Devinsk. And Rameir Simcha of Devinsk actually has an analysis of the historical reality that we Jews find ourselves 
in a new place. We've been exiled to a new place. We go to that new place. We slowly develop. We are persecuted. We are the victimized. We are the people who are the lowest of the low. And then we slowly develop until we reach the upper echelons of society, whether in different eras, different levels of acceptance, different levels of assimilation. But we develop until we're successful. And then we forget what got us to that point. And then things come crashing down rapidly. And he said, if you look at history, you find the cycle again and again and again. Now, he wrote this in the late 1800s. He says, if you look at Germany, he says, you will see that we Jews are now at the pinnacle of success. Mark my words, it will not be long before we are done with Germany as well, or rather Germany is done with us. It has been pointed out that a cyclical approach to the history of the nations can be found already in Herder. Yet Rabbi Shamshin of Al Hirsch's concept goes back much further to the Midrash, which sees in Yaakov's dream, Yaakov's dream of the ladder going up to heaven and the angels ascending and coming back down, the blueprint of world history. The nations rise and fall, while God assures Yaakov that just as I do not descend from my greatness, so to you and your children. Now, once again, what we're discussing over here is on a national level. And this is the response to what Benjamin was saying, that in terms of success on a national level, in terms of richness, in terms of innovation, in terms of the things that he looked at as being successful, since the Jews have not achieved. So once again, Rav Hirsch is saying you're completely wrong barometers and completely wrong uh, parameters of what you consider to be success. And if you had the correct ideas, then indeed you would see that the Jews have been and will continue to be successful as a whole. Okay, to be continued tomorrow night. Take care, everyone. Be well.